0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. If you're wondering where that is, it's between Nahum and Zephaniah. If you're wondering where those are, I can't help you. Habakkuk chapter 3. What you're about to hear read is the living word of God. It's given to you as a kingly gift. Please receive it as such. Habakkuk 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shigionoth. O Yahweh, I've heard the report of you and your works, O Yahweh, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath remember mercy. God came down from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Yahweh? Was your anger against... The rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horse, on your chariot of salvation. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for your salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horse the surging of mighty waters. I I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Well, the grass will wither and the flower does fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, we have the joy and the privilege of having uh, to minister the Word of God to us, Pastor Steve Watkins. Pastor Steve has been uh, the pastor at Trinity Bible Church since 2001. Uh, he is a graduate of the Master's College and uh, from Westminster West. He serves uh, on the executive board of the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals, which is how... Uh, I met Steve some years ago. I think it would have been in 2015 uh, when we were in Atlanta together. So Steve has been a friend of mine uh, since that time. Uh, He has been married to his um, way out of his league wife, Wendy, since 1996. And God has smiled upon them and blessed them with uh, three boys, Justin, Travis, and and Spencer. Uh, I know that Steve would not want me to tarry long in the accolades and the things about him, but I, I must say this he's a faithful pastor, a faithful husband, and a faithful dad, and those are worthy things to be known by and for. So if you would please come, brother, and minister the word to us.
1: Well, thank you, Daniel, for the undeserved accolades. The only thing Worthy that he said is that Wendy is way out of my league, (laughs) and I don't deserve her, but God is gracious, and grace is undeserved, and he also gave us three wonderful boys who we also don't deserve and who transcend anything that we are worthy of, but God is good. I want to thank you all who are here today to worship the Lord, and I want to thank your pastors, Brian and Daniel are both really good friends of mine. I do think Daniel and I have known each other for, for the last 10 years or so, and I think I've known Brian for longer than that. And this is the first time I've had the privilege of coming here and being a part of the worship of God here among these saints in Minden, so I'm very, very thankful to be here. I'm thankful for all who came to the Singles Conference. We've had a really great time, and we've, we've taken some pretty deep dives into God's Word together and looked in a really core way at what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a person of God, what it means to be a child of His, what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ, what it means to be buried with Him in baptism and raised up with Him to newness of life. And it's been pretty glorious as we've taken a look together from God's living and active Word at all of that life-defining truth that really means everything in terms of who we are and in terms of what we are ultimately and how we are to live our lives now that we've been crucified with christ and that we've been made new creations by his grace and by his power and the power of his resurrection in us And what I want to do this morning is continue sort of connected to that theme as we think about what it means to be in union with Christ and how that affects the way that we walk in newness of life. What does it look like to be living as a child of God in this world and living by faith and not by sight and according to the reality of what we are in Him? So what I want to do today and this morning at this session and this worship service is to talk together through the whole book of Habakkuk. And we're going to fly over it, sort of a jet tour of the book of Habakkuk, and, and, and stick the landing there in that wonderful hymn, that wonderful song that Habakkuk writes that Daniel read for us in chapter 3, and especially the, the closing verses. And what this prophecy does that God gave to His prophet and to His people through His prophet and to us through His living word is teach us how to be governed by the reality of who God is, what He's done for us, and who we are in Jesus Christ, in terms of how all of that truth and reality translates into the lives that we live now, in the flesh, in our bodies, in this world, which is a hard place to live, is it not? It's not easy living in this world. It's often painful living in this world, and this world is fraught with trials and afflictions and sufferings and sorrows of all kinds. How do we endure that? How do we live in the midst of that and the reality of that? And how do we honor our God in the midst of all of that? There's no end of places in God's all-sufficient Word that we could go to, right? To answer questions like that and to learn about that and to be guided by the great wisdom of God, to walk by faith when life is hard. Brutally hard, sometimes, oftentimes. Maybe for some of you, more often than not. We could go to any number of the Psalms where David shows us, by his own hard experience, how to cry out to God, how to lean on God's faithfulness in those kinds of times. We could go to the early part of Romans 5, or we could go to James, both of which teach us to rejoice even in our times of suffering because, as Paul says, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character actually increases hope. Without faith in our sovereign and faithful and good God, Suffering withers hope. But in Him, Paul says suffering increases hope. We could go to Romans 8.28 where we're assured that God works all of these kinds of things together for our good as He's working to refine us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. We could go to Hebrews 12 where we're told that God sovereignly disciplines those who He loves as a faithful Father. Helping us through all of the divinely ordained hardships of our lives to, to bear the peaceful fruit of unrighteousness even through the unpleasant circumstances. Those are all such wonderful places of, of God's Word, powerful, important passages of Scripture. So today, with, with all of them in our minds, I want to look with you maybe at a less familiar passage here in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet who was also going through hard things. And he needed desperately to learn to trust God and God's ultimately and and pervasively sovereign purposes in every single tiny little detail and aspect of his life and, and of the world, even the hard things. And that's something that all of us need always to learn and be reminded of. That God is sovereign over all of it. Not just the good things, but also the hard things. And that he's not just sovereign, he's good. Even in the hard things and the things that feel bad, God in his sovereignty is good. So Habakkuk is a prophet who's not happy with what he sees going on in the world around him. And what he sees is a lot of wickedness, a lot of evil, a lot of injustice in his own nation. In Israel, in Judah. And so instantly we can relate because there's plenty for us to be unhappy about. Plenty of injustice, plenty of evil in our world too. So when Habakkuk was just looking around at all that was wrong in his world, he felt maybe like you feel sometimes, he felt fed up with it. What's up with this? Why isn't it changing? God, why aren't you doing anything about it? And so that's, that's what he does in the first two chapters of this book. He has some questions for God. And the first question that Habakkuk has for God actually is more of a complaint, honestly, than a question... Which he lodges against God. And it's in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. So flip back to the very beginning of the book and look at those verses with me. It's summed up in the words that Habakkuk speaks in verse 2, where he says, O Lord, O Yahweh, how long am I going to cry out for help and you're not going to hear me? Can you believe that the prophet says that? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? I mean, that's a little shocking, right? To see a prophet of God, not, not just questioning what's going on in the world around him, and not just questioning God about what's going on and why this stuff is happening, and not just complaining, we do that all the time too, but actually what he's doing here is he's implicating God, isn't it? God, I know you're sovereign and why aren't you should be doing something and you're not? What's up with that? I've been crying out for help and you're not listening to me. Habakkuk says I've been crying out that there's all this violence. People are hurting me. People are doing terrible things. People are sinning in horrible, unjust, violent ways. But you're not doing anything about it. You're not saving. You should should be doing something, God. Putting a stop to all of this violence and wickedness, and you're not. You hear his tone? That's his tone. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, God. How audacious is that? (laughs) As if somehow this man, appointed by God to proclaim the Word of God, has some right to stand in judgment of God and in God's purposes and in judgment of God's ways. And that's exactly pretty much what he's doing. Verse 3, right? Look, why do you make me see iniquity and look idly at wrong Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth perverted. This is his attitude. He's upset. He's indignant. Because of all the injustice, all the violence, all the sin that's going on all around him. And he's become, here's the the problem with Habakkuk. He's become so inwardly focused on his own feelings about it, on how it's affecting him, that he's actually started to stand in this position of condemnation before his God. Why do you make me see iniquity? I don't deserve this. See, his attitude's all about him. His big concern is how things are affecting him. Everything, everything bad's happening all around him, and, it, and it's true, and it's hard to watch. We, we know that. It's, hard, it's upsetting to see. It's maddening when our world is full of unrighteousness and injustice. That's true. That's, it's legitimate to be bothered by that. It's understandable. But Habakkuk has come to a, a whole other place that if we're honest, um, maybe all too many of ourselves can find ourselves in sometimes. He's become so focused on how he feels about it all that he's literally come to conclude that he cares more about what's going on than God does. Why do you look idly at wrong? He asks God. I mean, so that's not even an implication anymore, right? He's literally saying to God, That while Habakkuk himself is righteously agonizing over all of the injustice and wrong in the world, God is just sitting by and doesn't care. God's just being idle and lazy. And its it can be really easy when we encounter bad attitudes like this in in people in Scripture to, to shake our heads and go, oh, Habakkuk, shame, shame. How could you... How could you have such an attitude? How could you say such things to God? And that's true. But we got to get honest, right? And if we're honest, don't we sometimes have those kinds of... Even if we don't let it out of our mouths, similar attitudes towards God sometimes. It starts innocently enough, maybe. It, it starts when, just like Habakkuk, we look around and we see all the violence and the immorality... And the injustice in the world around us, or we feel the the weight of the pain and the suffering in the world, or or we're watching somebody who's close to us, who we really love, who's dear to us, we're watching them suffer. Or we're experiencing suffering, we're experiencing suffering ourselves, and the pain of it, the burden of it is, is really, really intense. And so we cry out, Well, God, how long? How long does, does this suffering have to last? How long does this have to go I've been praying and praying. Where's the answer? And, and there's nothing wrong with that question itself, in and of itself, just at that bare level, wondering and crying out to God, how long? I mean, that's, that's really the cry of every struggling human heart. We don't, of course, we don't want to suffer. And when we do suffer, and, and when we watch other people suffer, of course we want the suffering to stop, and that's why we pray, God, heal them. Make an into it, Lord. So it's, it's normal and legitimate and human to pray for the day and long for the day when all of the wrongs are made right and all of the sufferings cease. And it's, it's good to cry out to our almighty and holy and sovereign God, how long? That's normal. And then it turns a corner really quickly when that cry turns into some kind of an indictment of God's character. And instead of just questioning how long it's all going to go on, we start to question God himself. Are you sure you know what you're doing in my life? Because it's not feeling good to me. And then, as we talked about at the conference some, we get tempted to say, maybe I should stop doing things your way because it's not working out, and I should start doing things my way more because that's going to go better for me. And isn't it true that every time we sin, it's because sin holds out a promise of of happiness to us? It's a false promise. It's a lie. It's a deception. But it holds out a promise of some happiness to us. And we're tempted to think that'll be better than what God promises. That's when we get in trouble. When we start questioning God Himself and His character and His goodness and His faithfulness and, and the, the veracity of His purposes and His ways, and we start to feel and think and say that, that something's wrong with God and what He's doing for letting all of this suffering continue to go on. And, and then we start to complain. And we put ourselves in a kind of a place above Him where, where we're standing in judgment over Him and demanding answers of Him. Job did this, didn't he? He never cursed God, but he did say, God, you owe me some, some answers here. You've got some explaining to do here. Right? And that, that happens, see, when in the midst of all of the hardship and the pain that we feel, our focus gets locked onto ourselves. Instead of being locked onto God and his goodness and his greatness and his faithfulness and his sovereignty. And this is the place where Habakkuk was in in chapter one. He's fed up, sick of it all. All the wickedness he sees around him, all the violence. He just wants it all to stop. But he becomes so inwardly focused on how it makes him feel that he'd lost his confidence in the greatness of God in his ways. He'd allowed suffering to give rise to, to self-absorption. And that's where we can all identify with Him because we're good at self-absorption. It's right down near the very core and heart of what it means to have sin remaining in us. But listen, and behold with me in this book how patient God is with His recalcitrant prophet his self-absorbed servant. And look how gentle God is with Habakkuk. Look how he responds to this questioning, to this complaining, to this pretentiousness. He doesn't just go like a bug and stomp him and just fire from heaven and brimstone and burn his prophet to toast. He could. And he would be fully within his rights to do that. But instead our God, our holy, sovereign, eternal God, patiently, graciously answers the question that he's under no obligation to answer by showing Habakkuk how awesome God is, he is. So that instead of suffering giving way to self-absorption it becomes an opportunity now for Habakkuk to become focused back on him and to rest in the almighty power and sovereign goodness and faithfulness of God once again and this is what he does for us too and this is why we have this book and it's also why we have sovereignly ordained difficult trials in our lives because there are opportunities that God gives to us graciously and mercifully to teach us the same lesson that the prophet's going to learn here. So Habakkuk's first complaint was, God, how long is all the violence, lawlessness, injustice, evil, how how long is it going to continue? How long are you going to let all this go unchecked? And here's God's response to the complaint, verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1. God says, verse 5, look among the nations and see. And wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if it were told to you. I'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind. So without getting defensive, God essentially says, very graciously, very patiently, No, my child. No, you fussy little toddler, Habakkuk. I am not just sitting idly by. In fact, I'm about to do something so wondrous and I'm already in the process of doing something so astounding that you wouldn't even believe it. So, lesson number one for us from this wonderful prophecy, when we're frustrated and just tired of all of the hardships and trials and sufferings and disappointments, That we have to see going on around us and that we have to endure ourselves. Lesson number one is that God is never sitting idly by because it's impossible for Him to do that. It's contrary to His very nature to be idle. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He is all-knowing, omniscient. And He is sovereign and always in control of every single aspect of His universe, let alone the dust specks of our lives on this one little planet in this universe. And His ways are infinitely higher than our ways. And His purposes are too infinitely wise and good for us to always even be able to grasp or, or, or let alone fully comprehend God is all-powerful. There's nothing He can't do. There's nothing He doesn't know about. There's nothing that takes Him by surprise. There's nothing that sneaks past Him or overcomes Him or is able to resist His will at all. And He cares. More than He does for the flowers of the field which He so meticulously clothes, he cares for you far more. more than the little birds that hop along the ground, which, be, which, which could be sold at, at marketplace for something like two for the equivalent of a penny. God cares He feeds them. He provides for them, and so much more he cares for you. He's never sitting on the couch. He's never indifferent to your pain, to your plight, to the atrocities that are going on in the world around you. He's always working in ways that are far too high for us to even comprehend. So, just because we don't see his plans at work, just because we don't understand what he's doing and when he's going to do what he's doing and why he's allowing and ordaining and what's going on, Just because he's not always answering our prayers immediately and exactly the way that we want him to, doesn't mean that he's not working. Doesn't mean that he's not caring. He always is. And in verse 6, God is kind enough to tell Habakkuk exactly how he's working, exactly what he's doing in ways that Habakkuk couldn't see for himself. God says, here's what I'm doing to deal with the sin and the wickedness and the violence and the lawlessness that's going on in Judah. In the very nation of God's people, which Habakkuk has been complaining about. Here's what God says, here's what I'm going to do about it. Trust me, I got this. Here's the plan. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Chaldeans. This bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth and seized dwellings which are not their own. They're a dreaded and fearsome people and their justice and dignity go forth only from themselves. This is the plan. They're going to come marching in here and they're going to, they're going to exact punishment on Judah and thrash them for all of the injustice. Don't worry, I got this. The Chaldeans were the Babylonians. And I I probably don't need to tell you at all about how historically the Babylonians were an absolutely treacherous and violent people and and how their treachery and violence affected the people of Judah in fulfillment of of God's plan here. The atrocities that the Babylonians inflicted on the nation of Judah were unthinkable. If you've read the book of Lamentations, you know what I'm talking about. So, we won't go into detail. But that's what they did. They came and stormed from the east and were absolutely atrocious and cruel and wicked in their treatment of Judah. And Habakkuk was living during the time shortly before that happened, before the Babylonians came and laid siege to Jerusalem. And God's saying to him, Look, it's coming, it's happening, they're coming. And they're not just coming randomly. They're not just coming because of of their imperialistic desires. They're coming according to my sovereign purpose to punish the wickedness of Judah and Jerusalem. I'm I'm raising up the Chaldeans, God says. These people that march through the breadth of the whole earth and take stuff that's not theirs, who are powerful, who are insidiously wicked and cruel. So... Verse 7 says, they're dreaded, they're fearsome, and their justice and dignity go forth only from themselves. That means that, that the only sense of justice and righteousness that these Babylonians, these Chaldeans had, was, was anchored in what they wanted in the sinfulness and wickedness of their own godless hearts. The only sense of dignity they had came entirely from their own bloodlust and violent desire for power and wealth and control. There's no compassion in the Babylonians. There's no recognition of basic human rights in the Babylonians. They wanted something, they went and took it. And they killed anyone and everyone who stood in their way. And then they enslaved everyone who was left so as to control and dominate as much as they could. So they're just nasty people. Here's what verses 8-11 through say. About the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar and fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces are forward. They gather captives like sand. They take slaves like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They're not intimidated by anybody. They laugh at every fortress. They just tear them all down. They pile up the earth and take it. They build siege, ramps, and walls like nobody's business. And then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God, their false God, their idol. They answer only to themselves and they worship their own strength. So you get it? You understand who these people are? They're not like God-fearing servants of the Lord. Oh, Yahweh, wherever you send us, we will go. No, 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 these people hate Yahweh. They know nothing of Him. And their only God is their own power. And they are wicked and evil to the core. So, lesson number two from the book of Habakkuk is that our God is sovereign over everything. Lesson number two for people who are frustrated and sick and tired of all the terrible things that go on in the world, all the brutal things that we endure ourselves, God is sovereign over all of it, all of it, even the terrible parts. And in His sovereignty, He's in control of the whole universe and every single instant of history. And he even, in his sovereign purposes, uses people and things that are inherently evil in themselves to accomplish his purposes. And his purposes are always good. Always good. Now this is where it gets tough. And this is, this is tough for Habakkuk, and it's tough for a lot of us too. For human beings in our natural state, this is a tough one to get our heads around. But it is the clear message of God's word, and not just here, right? The book of Exodus says that Pharaoh, during the, the captivity of the people of Israel in, in Egypt, Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God and became stubborn and rebellious. And in his defiance against God, Pharaoh ended up being Utterly destroyed. And whose fault was it? Who was responsible for Pharaoh's hard-hearted wickedness and sinfulness and, and rebelliousness against God? It was Pharaoh's responsibility. He hardened his heart. Well, guess what it also says in the book of Exodus? It says that it was God who sovereignly hardened Pharaoh's heart. Paul even quotes it in Romans chapter 9 and verse 17. For the scripture says. Exodus to Pharaoh, God speaking, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This was the whole point, Pharaoh. I didn't want you to be soft towards me, I didn't want you to be compliant when Moses came and said, Let my people go. I wanted you to resist. I wanted to send ten plagues that would progressively cause you to become more and more stubborn. So that, guess what you would do when you finally let them go out of desperation and they got to the Red Sea and the waters miraculously parted like walls and the people of Israel were going through, you would be so hard-hearted by that time Pharaoh and so recalcitrant and so full of ridiculous pride that you would go in after them that you would do the most cosmically stupid thing that any human has ever done in the history of the world and chase those people through those walls of water that I divided and think that you would prevail. So that when the waves came crashing down and crushed your army, everybody would know how sovereign I am. That's what I was up to, God says. So... So was Pharaoh morally responsible for the hardness of his heart which led to his destruction? Of course, absolutely. And was God sovereign over the sinful hardening of Pharaoh's heart so that God's perfect purposes would be accomplished even in Pharaoh's sin, even in Pharaoh's rebellion, even in his relentless persecution of the Hebrews? Absolutely. So does that mean that God in his sovereignty, because he purposed all this before the foundations of the world, did he make Pharaoh sin? Was he the author of this evil in Pharaoh? Absolutely not. No, God cannot sin. God cannot make people sin. God cannot tempt people to sin. James 1.13 says with absolute clarity, it's contrary to his nature. Again, it's impossible for him to sin. To create sin, to author evil, to make sin, to tempt for sin. God's never the author of evil, John says in 1 John 2. All the evil that is in the world, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all of it exists everywhere, and none of it comes from God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. God is holy. And there's no sin in him. And he can't sin. He can't tempt. He can't cause anyone to sin. And at the same time, he sovereignly ordains and uses the sinful purposes and deeds of fallen people in order to accomplish his own good and holy purposes. And so Proverbs 16 says, The Lord has made, Yahweh has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Ah, that's a deep mystery, right? And it, and it legitimately is too deep for our minds to fully grasp this mystery that on the one hand, God hates evil. He forbids it. He abominates it. And at the same time, He sovereignly raises up evil people to do evil things. All without implicating Himself, without creating or authoring or causing the evil, or being culpable for it in any way, shape, or form. Do you get that fully? Does that calculus fully add up in your mind? Because if it does, then you're God. (laughs) I don't get it either. But it's what God says in His Word, and so it is true. God forbids evil, God never causes evil, but God doesn't just allow evil passively either. He ordains it sovereignly for His perfect purposes. This is is the truth. Somewhere in between allowing passively and causing actively is God sovereignly ordaining everything. Planning it, purposing it in order to work out his good and perfect will. And if you struggle with that whole deal, there are a couple of there's a lot, but there's a couple of passages of scripture that are precious to my heart where you can go and meditate and let God just say to you, "I know you can't possibly understand all of this, but this is this is what it is, and it's good, and this will cause you to rejoice in it." One of them is in Acts chapter 2. So you, we're not going to turn there, but you can just write it down for future reference and you already know it. Acts chapter 2, Peter's words in verses 22 and 23 where he's, he's talking about the worst evil which was ever perpetrated ever, ever, ever in the history of the world which was the murder of Jesus. The sinless Son of God. Right? That's, that's literally unquestionably the worst, most heinous, most evil thing that was ever done when the godless, sinful people nailed Jesus to that cross. And here's what Peter says about that wretchedly wicked act and the sovereign purposes of God in it. Acts 2.23, you know these words. He's talking to the Jewish leaders who gave Jesus up to be crucified. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, and you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up, listen, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There it is. There is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility gloriously harmonized. Even if we can't fully understand the hows and the there it is. The wickedness and evil that landed Jesus on that cross. The fault for it. The responsibility for it. The culpability for it. Squarely 100% on the shoulders of those lawless men who did it. They crucified Him. They killed Him. They were wicked in doing it. And they did it by the hands of lawless men. And all of it happened according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And understand how the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God go together, right? God foreknew that it would happen, not just because He looked down the pipe and knew in advance and decided to passively allow these people to do what He knew they would do. No. God foreknew it because God planned it. I know this is going to happen because I purposed it to happen. He willed it. He decreed it before it ever happened, before any of the godless men who ever who, who did it ever existed. He planned it. They did it. And even though they did it according to His plan, they're guilty for it. Before God, they'll answer to Him for it. Who planned it? So, just soak in those verses once in a while and let God say, I know it's too much for you to comprehend, but that's okay. It's what it is and it's good you can trust me. And the other favorite place of mine to meditate on the great deep wonders of how God sovereignly accomplishes his purposes, even by using terrible things in this world to to accomplish unimaginably good things, just like he did with his own son on the cross. My other favorite place in scripture to go when I'm thinking about why evil and suffering and pain happens in this world is the book of Habakkuk. How long, O Lord, will all the violence and injustice and lawlessness go on? Why are you sitting all idly by? Answer. Listen, just because you don't see or understand what I'm doing doesn't mean I'm not doing it. I'm doing something way beyond your comprehension, your capacity to understand. I'm raising up these wretchedly horrible Chaldeans. Chaldeans. So Havoc's second question then is probably the same as yours might be. And essentially it's this. So God, how can it be a good idea to punish a really, really sinful people with a people who are way more sinful? Right? Doesn't Doesn't the cure seem to be worse than the sickness, God? Here's what Habakkuk actually says. Verse 13, chapter 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, the Holy One? He means, God, you're holy. The Chaldeans are not. You can't use them. He's kind of going, and then he says at the end of the verse, we shall not die. Right? He's kind of, well, never mind, God. I'm not going to complain anymore. We'll be all right. We We don't need you to do this. Right? Forget I ever said anything. And then he goes on, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. The reproof of Judah. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Uh, again, with the sit and idly by line, right? He's saying... God is too pure to ordain these wicked Chaldeans as a judgment against the sinful Israelites, Judeans. God is so pure, he can't even look on evil. He can't even look on wrongdoing. And he's, he's right in the sense, right, God knows all things. But he's right in the sense that God is, is too pure to see evil and look at wrong in and, and, and the sense of approving it. And that's, to Habakkuk, that's what it seems like God's doing. You, you can't do this because you're just, you're just letting the Chaldeans be evil. He uses an illustration, an allegory in verses 14 through 17 of fishermen to show God how crazy he thinks he is for raising up the Chaldeans. He says they're like a big net. The Chaldeans sweeping through and, and just dragging people up out of the water like fish to be killed and eaten. This is what the Chaldeans are like, God. In, just in case God didn't know. Um, they rejoice to, to kill people. They celebrate in killing people. They take their homes like a fisherman just rejoices in a full net of fish. They're merciless, God. And so verse 17, is their mercilessness just going to go on forever, unchecked, unpunished? So this is his second question. This is his second complaint against the sovereign God of the universe. And he gets a... Look at chapter 2 and verse 1 now. He gets a little a little cheeky, doesn't he? <laughs> Lodging these critiques against God, making these points, calling God's wisdom into question with, with, with all of his erudition and all of these salient and profound arguments that he's able to muster up. He says... I will take my stand at my... This is Habakkuk speaking. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Nice, right? I'll be waiting, God, for you to answer all of my super awesome questions. (laughs) And once again, God is supremely patient and gracious in his response. So Habakkuk's first question had been, how long are you going to sit idly by and and do nothing about all of the sin in Judah? Answer, well, I'm not sitting idly by. I'm doing something wondrous. I'm, I'm raising up the wicked Chaldeans to bring judgment on the sin in Judah. So second question, well, wait a minute, how can you do that? How can it be good to punish sin with even greater sin? You're too holy to do that. You're too pure to do that. Second answer, you ready for it? It's okay, Habakkuk, you're right. The Chaldeans are wicked. And I'm not approving of their sin. It's serving my sovereign purpose. And after it's done, after the Chaldeans come and rain down violence on Judah and Jerusalem, I will punish them too. In verse 4 of chapter 2, God says that the Chaldeans are puffed up and arrogant. They're not upright. He contrasts them with people who are righteous and live by faith. Meaning that the unfaithful Chaldeans, they're not going to live at all. Verse 5 God says that the Chaldeans' greed is as wide as Sheol. They can't get enough of death and violence. Verses 6 and 7, God says that the nations who have been plundered by the Chaldeans will one day begin to taunt them and rise up against them. And verse 8, listen to God say now to the Chaldeans, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples will plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth and to the cities and all who dwell in them. They're going to get theirs. Justice will come for them too, God says. And then in verses 9 through 14, we're flying over the top here. God pronounces a series of woes, curses on The Chaldeans on Babylon saying that for every evil act that they're guilty of, for every nation that they've plundered and destroyed, for every idol they've worshipped, for every wrong they've committed, God is going to make it all right. God is going to punish them. God is going to measure out judgment precisely according to their sins, the Babylonians' sins. Alright, so are you with me? Are you with God? How is this theology of Habakkuk sitting with you? God brings righteous, holy judgment on the sinfulness of his own people by raising up an even more sinful people, not causing their sin or authoring it, but ordaining it, and sovereignly using their wickedness for his sovereign purposes, after which he's going to also judge and punish the wicked Chaldeans for doing what he raised them up to do. You got it? You okay with it? Is it hard to grasp and comprehend? Yeah. In fact, it's impossible because God's ways and thoughts are so much higher than ours. So there's two possible responses, right? When people come into contact with this truth in the word of God about who he is and how he works and how his sovereign holy purposes interact with the unholy wickedness and godlessness and pain and suffering that goes on in the world and in people's lives every single day either people will say nope forget that I do not accept that a dear dear friend of my wife and I has once said to us if that's who God is I don't want him she has since repented and through severe and brutal trials in her own life, fallen on her face to worship this God and adore Him for sovereignly ordaining the trials that broke her of herself and brought her back to Him. But either peop- that's what people do, right? They—they they, In their unbelief, they can't rationally accept that God, who's good, can sovereignly ordain things that are horrific and and. and Terrible and evil in this world. They can't and they often won't accept that the sorrow and pain in their own lives are ordained by a God who's good and loves them. Or they can't accept that if He does ordain them, that He's in fact good for doing it. So that's the negative response, right? They'll either call God's sovereign power into question. He's not sovereign over the bad stuff. I'll grant you that He's sovereign over the good things, but He's not sovereign over evil. Or, if they're willing to accept that He's sovereign over everything, they'll call His goodness into question. Well, if He is sovereign over it, then He's not good, and I don't trust Him. And that's where they say, if this is what it means, I can't trust him. I can't follow him. The same person that I just told you about was in my office for counseling once. And I was trying to get her down to the bottom line and see this. The problem is not what's happened to you so much as that you don't trust God. And she, in a flash, instant of passion, said, Well, look at my, in a curse word, look at my life. Look what he's done to me. How can I trust him? Again, now, now she trusts him. Things got worse. And now she trusts him no matter what. So that's the other thing, right? That's the other possibility when people encounter this truth in Scripture. And usually God has to ring us out pretty hard to get us here, but... We either reject it in our unbelief or we we accept it. Even though we can't fully comprehend it in all of the depth and richness of God's infinite wisdom and sovereignty. Nonetheless, God is who God is. And He is always good and faithful. And the incomprehensibility of His ways doesn't actually make him less worthy of being trusted and adored and praised and loved. It makes him infinitely more worthy to be praised and adored and trusted and depended on and submitted to no matter what. Because he's unimaginably awesome. And so, what God so gently shows Habakkuk here is exactly who he is. Verse 20, chapter 2. We're hitting the afterburners now, but... After revealing the great incomprehensible mystery of his sovereign ways, God says these words to Habakkuk. And he's contrasting himself with pagan people who say, oh, I can't trust this God, so I'm going to create a God of my own, right? I'm going to make an idol out of wood. (laughs) And it's going to have eyes that can't see and ears that can't, but I'm going to trust it more than the living God, right? (laughs) Foolishness. God's identifying this same core sort of thing in Habakkuk's heart. Revealing his greatness and sovereign ways and goodness to Habakkuk. And then he says in verse 20, The Lord, in contrast to the idols, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The immediate application for Habakkuk is, it's time to stop asking questions now. It's time to stop complaining. It's time to stop critiquing and and evaluating and judging the character and the ways of God and demanding answers. Time to stop looking at all through the lens of your own feelings and desires and experiences and your human reason Time to stop saying, God, you you better explain yourself in a way that satisfies my reason. It's time to lift your eyes off of yourself now. And cast them on the glories of the Lord and be still. Psalm 46. And just know that He is God. God. The one who is holy and pure and just and faithful and righteous and good. And who always sovereignly causes all things to work together for good. Those who accept him for who he is will shut their mouths before him in terms of speaking the kinds of things Habakkuk did. They'll bow, they'll worship, they'll adore. And that now is exactly what Habakkuk does. In chapter 3, right? He shuts his mouth from from asking questions. He stops lobbing criticisms at God. He, He stops standing in judgment over God and demanding answers and saying, God, this pain in my life, this sorrow in my life, it's not okay. It's wrong and you're supposed to do something about it. He just stops critiquing the eternal, infinite, sovereign purposes of God. God says, this is who I am. And if I do things that are beyond your comprehension, then the right thing for you is not to keep questioning me and complaining, it's to be silent. Because my ways are too great to be comprehended, let alone critiqued, just accept it. People either will or they won't. They'll either bow or they'll chafe. And complain. And be bitter. But not Habakkuk. Praise God that all of the bitterness is now washed out and wrung out. This vision of the sovereign purposes of God has shattered his pride. And melted his heart and shut his mouth. And driven him to his knees now. In humble adoration and praise. And so whatever now does come out of his mouth. Which is chapter 3 is praise. It's a, it's, a, it's a song of adoration that Habakkuk writes. And, and all of it now sounds like adoration and praise and submission and trust. Now it all sounds like faith. Now it all sounds like I'm so overcome with God that I don't care about anything about myself, how I feel, what's going on, what I want. None of that matters because look at how great God Fly through it with me. We we don't have time to really dig in, but please do on your own. He prays according to the fear of the Lord in chapter 3, verse 2. He recalls the splendor of the manifestation of God's glory in verses 3 and 4. He revels in God's great and awesome power in verses 5 and 6. He rejoices 7 through 9 in God's justice And faithfulness and holiness. He's just taken his systematic theology, his theology proper. And remembering it. And also all of the good things that God has done. He acknowledges God's absolute sovereignty over all of creation. In verses 10-12. through He's praising God that even though God is a just God who punishes the wicked. He's also a merciful God. Who does save sinners, verses thirteen through fifteen? And then, thinking about all of it, who God is and all the great things God always does, all the awesomeness of God in His ways, he says this in verse sixteen, "I hear, and my whole body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters. Into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. The Babylonians. You see what he's saying? You're right, God. You're right, God. Job did this too right at the end. After all that happened to him. And all of that dialogue with his friends. And then God shows up and says, Y'all be quiet. And listen to me. And says to Job, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. You think you have even the faintest glimmer of of comprehension compared to my great power and wisdom? And Job says, shut my mouth. And I fall in the dust. You're right, God, Habakkuk says. You're too awesome even for me to comprehend. I'm just going to shut my mouth. And I'm going to wait for you to do the things that you do because they're perfect and they're, they're awesome and they're sovereign and they're good and your purposes will never fail. That's faith, see? I don't need to understand. I just need to know you're sovereign and good. This is what happens when we take our eyes off ourselves. This is what happens when we fix our eyes on the awesomeness of God and his ways. And, and praise God, he's given us 66 books Where every time we're suffering and struggling, going, why and how long? You just pick up the book. Where am I going to learn about it? It's in the book. And it's God, He wrote it. It's all true. And it's living and it's active. And it helps us fix our eyes on and minds and hearts. And it guards our hearts, takes our thoughts captive. Got to take our eyes off ourselves. We got to get our eyes fixed on God. And then we got to allow our circumstances and our sufferings to take a back seat. And we, we gotta, we gotta if, you, if your eyes are fixed on yourself, then, then it's just gonna be generating all this self-pity and frustration, and discontentment. All that's gotta go. And fixed on God, we gotta become overwhelmed with an abiding sense of his goodness and his greatness and his sovereign faithfulness. And that, see, this is the spiritual journey that God very gently and patiently and painfully takes Habakkuk on in this book from, from self-focused frustration and anxiety and discontentment, to God-focused humility and adoration and praise. And we gotta stop, but look where it ends. <laughs> His prayer ends in, in this hymn, in verses 17 through 19, this song. What, what does it look like, what does it sound like to endure brutal suffering? When there's no light at the end of the tunnel, through faith. Sounds like this. Though the fig tree should not blossom. It's the words not all throughout here, right? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor any fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive tree fail. The fields yield no food. You can insert anything in your life in here, by the way. The cancer not go away. The suffering not end. The singleness not yield to marriedness. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will exult, rejoice in the Lord. And I will take joy in the God of my salvation. For God the Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the deer's and he makes me tread on high places. Can you say that? That's like Job again, right? His though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. It's also like Asaph's, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What about us? What about the song of our lives? When God is great and awesome and central in our hearts, the song is even beyond Job's, yet will I trust and hope in him, it, 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 yet will I rejoice and exult in the God of my salvation. Because even if the wheels completely come off the wagon of this world, and they are, and our lives, and when they do, nothing can begin to compare to the awesome God who is and who is our God, our Father, because He saved us. So let's pray to Him together today as we close our time and ask Him for faith. Father God, how grateful we are and how much praise we give You for Your Word and for the truth that it speaks to us about who You are, both in Your eternal life omnipotent, sovereign, righteous, holy power. And Father, in Your fatherly, holy, loving mercy and grace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness to us. So Father, help us trust You. Help us take our eyes off of ourselves. And the momentary light afflictions of our lives, and be overwhelmed and rejoice in all of the goodness of your character and nature and ways. And Father, we would ask that you would help us not just understand in our minds, but that this word would take root deep in our souls, and that we would become not only hearers of the word. Doers. May we live by faith and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at GraceNevada.com. That's GraceNevada.com.